I'm Sean J. Kennedy, and this is Backstage at the Enharmonic. So today's episode is going to be a little different to most of the podcast I've done here. There's no guest. Uh, earlier this week, Facebook reminded me that a mentor and former teacher of mine passed away two years ago this week. I have been meaning to do some sort of tribute to this gentleman, and uh, time has just slipped away. And I figured I better do it now um, before any more time passes by. So it's just going to be me, and I wrote a couple pages of notes for myself to stay on track and talk about uh, the influence uh, that this great percussionist had on me. His name was Joe Goebel. So uh, Joseph Goebel was the percussion professor at Westchester University, where I got my undergraduate degree and my master's degree. But I was very fortunate in that I had three different percussion teachers during my time at the university. For the beginning of my undergraduate studies in 92 is when I started at Westchester, I believe, um, I had Joe Goebel, who was at the end of his career. Uh, he was at Westchester from the late 60s. I think it was 68 that he started, somewhere around there. And he built the percussion studio and the percussion ensemble into quite um, a notable uh, group uh, for percussionists that wanted to be well-rounded percussionists on all the percussion instruments. That is the mallet instruments, timpani, drum set, etc. So I was there right at the end uh, of his career, and uh, I only studied with him for a year, but the lessons were invaluable, and that's what I hope to uh, share with some of you here today is some of the stuff I learned from Joe. Um, And then for a brief time, um, one of his former students, the great uh, percussionist uh, Richard Fitz, uh, was running the studio, and I got to study with him, and he had just um, stepped down from his full-time position with uh, an Air Force band. Um, And then for my master's, uh, Dr. Chris Hanning was at Westchester a few years later, so I kind of had the best of uh, both worlds, as it were. I got the old school and the new kind of mixed together. And I think for me as a student, uh, musician, percussionist, and person, uh, it was a great uh, combination for me. Um, So, but specifically, this podcast is about Joe Goebel. So Joe was born November 8th, 1939, and he passed away October 26th, 2020. So let's talk about Joe. I'm going to start with um, my audition at Westchester. Uh, So I auditioned at Westchester University to get into their music ed program in 1992. Uh, Yes, I graduated high school in 1989. So what happened in the interim? Well, I started out life as a communications major, and then I moved over to computers. uh, But I was never happy with those majors. And after, uh, you know, some tough talks with mom and dad, uh, I decided to change majors and go full steam ahead into music. And Westchester University, right outside of Philly here, has a great um, reputation for education, performance, anything associated with music. So I went through um, all the applications, and the day came where my parents took me down to the university, and we sat in a large auditorium hearing about financial aid, 
um, job prospects of students after they graduate. Uh, it was a lot of people in suits saying very boring things. Eventually, after those meetings, um, the students were separated from the parents, and we had to start going through all of the prerequisite testing to get admittance to the music school. If you're not familiar with how to get into music school, let me just break that down real quick in case you never did that. Um, to get into a music college, you have to, if it's a state school like Westchester is, you apply to Westchester University and they look at your, you know, your high school math grades, English, science, etc., SATs, and the university will give you a verdict like, yes, you're in the university or no, you're not. So all my academic uh, studies, English, math, etc., were fine. I got into the university. The next step is then to audition and take a battery of tests to see if you will get admitted to the music school. I think this is same, similar to art and dance at uh, state institutions like this. You can't just sign up. Uh, so I was all set to uh, go to Westchester, and they said, all right, you need to play piano for us. You'll need to sing. You'll need to do a music theory test for placement. And then, of course, you'll need to audition on your major instrument. And my major instrument, of course, is percussion. So I was separated from my parents, and they took us to the music building. And they basically, I think it was like alphabetical, or we had random numbers. And they said, all right, you people go over here, and um, you're going to go play a piano piece. So if you're an education major, at least back in my day when I tried out to be an education major, you had to play piano. So I went into this little piano studio um, with a baby grand piano, and I think there were three piano professors there in suits with absolutely no personalities. Uh, it was dimly lit. I walked in and I was like, uh, hi, I'm here to audition. And they basically pointed uh, like the Grim Reaper for me to go sit down. And I played my pieces and they had sheets that they tallied my score on. And that was it. I left the piano room uh, hoping that I had passed whatever, uh, you know, um, requirements they um, <clears throat> had set forth. Uh, luckily, I did. I found out I went right to private piano lessons, uh, which I learned was uh, beneficial because if your piano skills were low, you had to go to piano class where you'd be in a piano lab with 15 to 20 people at once with headphones on, etc. At least I had some good piano chops to pass out of that, and I went to straight to piano lessons uh, for my first two years as a education major. The next room I went to uh, was the vocal professors. Again, it was a very small studio, two or three vocal professors there, and they said, sing your piece of music for us. Um, I had never sung in front of human beings ever in my life at this point, and uh, I laugh now. I sang a Broadway show tune. I sang Empty Chairs at Empty Tables from Les Miserables. Um, in retrospect, I probably should have picked something else, but uh, needless to say, after my vocal performance, I went straight to vocal class. I did not pass out of the vocal class and go to lessons. I had to take um, a semester or two of vocal class. Rightfully so, mind you. Uh, the next thing I had to do was go to ear training, and this one was a little better. Uh, it was just a guy, a professor, of course. I remember who it was. It was Dr. Robert Maggio, 
And he was a young guy. He was very happy. He said, hey, come on in. And he kind of tinkled around on the piano and said, like, sing this. He went, like, bump, bump, bump. And I had to go, like, la, la, la. And he was basically seeing, you know, how my pitch retention was, if I was tone deaf, et cetera. And he gave me a score on that. And then the next thing uh, was much more formal. Uh, All of us went into a classroom and were given paper and pencil and had to take a music theory test. And it had questions such as, um, please spell a D minor minor seventh chord. So I would have to write the letters, you know, D, F, A, C natural or something or write it on a staff to show that I understood chords. Uh, There were also audio things like they'd play something and say, look at example A and circle the mistakes that you see. So look and listen and circle mistakes. It was one of those things. And again, it was a placement test. Uh, Do you need to be in remedial theory or can you go right to theory one? And luckily for some reason, I was able to pass and I went right to theory one, which was great. Now, why all of the background on my day auditioning? It's because of Joe Goebel that I had to tell you what I went through. So it was very formal, probably two hours of this uh, testing. The last thing on that day that I had to do was play my major instrument for the percussion professor. This is before email. It's before cell phones. I didn't know what the guy looked like. I had never spoken to him. Um, And someone said, oh, you're a percussionist? Go down to the percussion studio. Uh, and play for Joe Goebel. Then you're out of here. So it was an old building built back in the mm, 50s or 60s, um, two stories. The whole morning I was on the top floor with the theory professors and vocal people, whatever. And as usual, the percussion was far from everyone else. So my parents were with me at this point, and I walked down to the second uh, floor, which was kind of the basement, and I found the percussion studio. It was in a corner of the building, Uh, near some vending machines and the percussion door said you know Professor Goebel and had some notes for students um, of upcoming events you know like a bulletin board outside and we're waiting let's say my audition was at 1.30 I forget Uh, so it's 1.25 dutifully I'm waiting outside with my stick bag and my uh, folder full of the pieces I was going to perform and it's 1.35, no one's there. It's 1.40, 1.45, about 15, 20 minutes we've been waiting. All of a sudden, a, a man with um, very curly brown hair, gigantic glasses, and a parachute sweatsuit came walking down the hallway. Now, this is 1992, so imagine... Um, you know, kind of neon green and neon yellow. And every time he moved, you heard... And the guy doesn't say anything to us. He's making a beeline right for the vending machine. Um, He puts his money in, got his snack out, and uh, goes over to the door. And he's like, oh, who are you? I'm like, "Uh, I'm Sean Kennedy. I'm here. I'm, I'm waiting for Professor Goebel. And he goes, I'm Joe Goebel. You auditioning? I'm like, yeah. He goes, come in. Let's let's go. So <laughs> that was my introdu- introduction to um, Joe Goebel. And I think that's the only time I ever referred to him as Professor Goebel. Um, so we go in. 
My parents went on their way. He said, you know, it's going to be about a half hour. He'll meet you, you know, at the entrance to the school or whatever. So they go away. I go into the studio. It's not a very big studio. I'm trying to remember right now. Maybe it was like, uh, I don't know, 10 by 20 size room down in the basement. Had marimbas set up, drum set, some other, other stuff. And uh, the first thing I noticed when I went in the office, um, as he was collecting his um, information about me, he had some folders and stuff, so he was trying to, uh, you know, get the documents that he had to um, fill out after I played. So I'm looking around the room, and all I see are pictures of students performing. All the percussion students laughing, having a good time. Uh, some were in the schools. Some were, it seemed to be a tropical venue. Uh, there were pictures of people driving rider trucks. I didn't know exactly what I was walking into and what I was seeing because the months leading up to this and even the hours leading up to this, everything was very formal and um, very by the book. The room I had just walked into with Professor Goebel was not by the book or very formal. Uh, to say his office space was unique is an understatement. And anyone listening to this that studied with Joe is probably right there in their mind's eye and can see exactly what I'm talking about. So uh, he goes, all right, what do you want to play first? So the audition basically was play a snare drum etude. Play something on mallets, that's xylophone or marimba. Uh, play timpani. And then if you have anything else you want to do, you can do that. That was kind of the vibe for this audition. So I played um, a piece from Anthony J. Cerrone's book, Portraits and Rhythm, first. It was his um, etude number 13. So I had worked that up and I played it. Joe wrote some things down. Didn't really say much and went, okay, what do you want to play next? I'm like, uh mallets and he went great so I went to his marimba a beautiful rosewood marimba he had there I think it was um, a four octave uh, it was gorgeous marimba I think they still have it at the school and uh, the piece that I had chosen was a piece called Horace Staccata um, kind of a violin uh, transcription that fits nicely on mallets so I played that he wrote some things down and said okay I want to play timpani I'm like yeah sure so I played timpani, and I think the piece was Scherzo by Mitchell Peters. Nice little piece. And he goes, all right, you want to play anything else? And as he was still finishing up his snack that he had gotten from the vending machine about 20 minutes earlier, um, and I said, well, I, I play drum set, sir. And he goes, oh, you do? All right, sit down. And he's fumbling with a, a cassette deck. And he goes, play along with this. He goes, uh, the rhythm section is going to play, and then they're going to drop out, and you have to solo for four measures and then come back in. It's swing. Here we go. He hits play. A one, two, three, four. I uh, comp, and I play, and I solo and whatnot. And he goes, oh, man. He goes, that was great. He goes, who do you study? Did you study with someone? I'll pause right now because the audition took a left turn. The first 20 minutes was kind of very businesslike. It was like, next, next, next. Um, but when I played drum set, his whole demeanor changed. Um, I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's because um, of his performance preferences um, or whatever, or he saw I wasn't just coming in doing the academic thing that most auditionees had done. 
maybe it was my playing. I don't know. I can only hope that maybe it was the way I interpreted something. But the, his demeanor changed. And we started talking about my high school teacher. I mentioned Ray Dealey, and he had, of course, heard of him. Um, he asked me who I listened to. And at that time, I was obsessed with Doc Severinsen and the Tonight Show Band and Ed Shaughnessy. And he went on and on talking about how great they were. And then I got my first lesson from Joe Goble. He was like, well, what else do you listen to? And I was, the big bands, Glenn Miller, etc. And he goes, oh, he goes, do you know the Capital Years collection by Sinatra? I said, well, no, I, I really don't. I know some of Sinatra's tunes, but I've never really heard of that collection. He goes, all right. He goes, when you get out of here, um, I want you to go to the store and I want you to buy this uh, CD collection. It's a 3D, three CD collection. Um, it's some of Sinatra's greatest work. It's called The Capital Years. He goes, you listen to it, you learn every track on that, and you'll work for the rest of your life. He goes, it's some of the greatest musicianship you'll ever hear in the 20th century on that collection. And I was like, okay. Um, he wrote down his scores. He put them in an envelope. He said, all right, I'm going to send this upstairs, and uh, you'll be hearing from us. Nice to meet you, et cetera, et cetera. So that was it. Met my parents. They said, how was it? I said, um, that percussion guy was much different than any, everyone else on this campus. And uh, if I get in here, I think I'm going to have a good time and learn a lot from this guy. And they're like, great. I said, he already gave me a lesson. I said, on the way home, can we stop at um, Sam Goody? He told me to buy a CD. And they were like, what? So on the way home, we stopped and I bought the Capital Years. And I've had it ever since, and I've recommended it to every one of my students that has ever come up and studied with me. And uh, Joe was right. Uh, learning that material has opened a lot of doors for me and made people uh, look at me uh, twice when I play drum set. And especially in my younger years, they were like, how old are you? You know all this repertoire? Um, it was some of the best advice he ever gave me. Uh, so that was how I met Joe. string sitting on a rainbow got the string around my finger so <clears throat> now I got my formal acceptance letter a couple weeks later and at the time Westchester I don't know what they do now or if other colleges do this but there were two scores that you were eligible to get there was a score to be a music education major, and then a higher score was to be a performance major. So that being said, if you got a score that only lived in the education realm, you could not be a, a performance major without re-auditioning. However, since the um, performance score was higher, if you got a performance score, you could naturally also be an education major. So I got my score back, and as I said, I had been a couple different majors at this point, English, communications, whatever, and there was a lot of contention at home. You know, should I even go into music, uh, get a real job type of thing, uh, different people, um, with the best of intentions, of course. Uh, but they had said maybe music's not the safest thing to do. When I got my score back in the evaluations from uh, Professor Goebel, um, he had scored me um, above the minimum performance score 
necessary to be a performance major. Uh, my score was an 87. I think the minimum performance score you needed was an 84, if I'm remembering correctly, and it's very clear to me because I was going through a lot of personal struggles as well, going, is this the right decision? You know, I don't play like Buddy Rich. Um, will I be able to survive in the music world? And Joe giving me a score of 87, you know, verifying that I could be a performance major um, was a huge boost of confidence uh, to me when I saw that. And it allowed me to go forward with my ambitions um, with some more confidence. Um, sadly, I never got to thank him for that personally. Uh, but that's part of the reason I'm making this tribute to him. Uh, to let you know the impact that he had on me and the impact that any teacher can have on a student out there. So, Joe, thank you for your vote of confidence. All right, so let's go back to Joe's studio. Uh, I see my notes here. Um, as I studied with him that semester in the spring semester, um, every lesson was always interrupted by him pointing to a student on the wall and telling me, uh, a story about the student, and the guy had a memory. Uh, it was like a steel vault, this guy. Uh, I think information went in, and it never came out. So let's just go to a random lesson. I'm playing something, and something reminded him of the way another kid played, and he would walk over to his wall of you know pictures of different tours and stuff that the percussion ensemble had done, and he goes, here, this is Dana. She was a student of mine X number of years ago. She's from Long Island. Now when she played this, blah, 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 and he'd go into this whole thing, and he'd say, now she's a band director in Long Island. And every single person that was on that wall, he could go on and tell you where they were from, where they came from, what they're doing, um, and use them as an inspiration for the next generation. Um, it was unbelievable. He would uh, show me, he's like, this guy is named Steve. He's a current member here. He's from out in Lancaster. Uh, fantastic uh, multi-percussionist. This guy is also from Lancaster. His name was Richard Fitz, and he plays in the Air Force now, etc., etc., etc. And uh, it was amazing how everything in his studio was about the studio. In retrospect, um, it blows me away what his studio looked like. I've been in many other professors' studios, and one of the first things you see is their degrees on the wall, uh, notable concerts they've performed in, etc. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but the interesting thing about Joe's studio, he had none of his degrees hanging up, he had no pictures of himself, or any of his accolades that he had gotten over his career, it was all the kids in the studio. And uh, that really stuck with me because I think those were the trophies for him. And what I mean by that is the students that he taught their successes in life, whether it was percussion or not, um, I think that's what gave him uh, the greatest joy. Because there were other students on that wall, you know, from... 20 years before I was a student of Joe's and he'd point to this guy and say yeah he was a great musician he got out of music now uh, he's going he went into dentistry etc etc or some other field but Joe was equally as proud of that kid as he was of someone that went into percussion and uh, that really stuck with me um, that image of the students being his greatest treasure um, so that was a little aside that I thought I should just throw in there. All right. More about Joe as a musician. 
So <laughs> there was a movie that came out a couple of years ago called The Greatest Showman. It was good, and Hugh Jackman was fine. But I think the greatest showman that I've ever been able to work with was Joe Goebel. Um, he almost had skills of a vaudevillian. Now, he was born back in the late 30s, so probably coming up, he had worked with previous vaudevillians and had seen some of these folks. And actually, I do have a list of some of the performers that he worked with, and a lot of the performers started in vaudeville. Um, he was a master of ceremonies, um, a master at being a master of ceremonies, that is, an MC. Um, <laughs> the percussion ensemble was a 16-member unit that traveled, and we could unload a rider truck and set up in an elementary school in under 15 minutes. It was like a military operation, uh, you know, once the season started for us. And there were always issues backstage. You know, the vibes pedal was broken. Um, one of the marimba strings was broken. Where's the cowbell? You know, all this stuff that happens when you're unloading a truck and loading into a new venue. And Joe would be in the hallway and people would be yelling and screaming like, it's broken, you got to fix it. Rah! And it was just cacophony. And he'd turn around on the microphone and there would be a auditorium or cafeteria, actually, usually a cafeteria floor filled with 500 elementary school students. And within this, you know, him turning around, he was he was the happiest guy ever, like a Disney level performer. So three seconds before he's like, fix that marimba blank bleep blop blop words I'm not going to say on my podcast and then he'd turn around and be like good morning boys and girls my name is Joe Goebel and this is the Westchester Percussion Ensemble how many of you like drums you know it was like it was like Jekyll and Hyde the guy was unbelievable as far as far as controlling a crowd and keeping uh, the interest level of whatever age group was in front of him that's one thing that always uh, I marveled at now this percussion ensemble um, we toured the East Coast extensively, and every winter break and spring break, the percussion ensemble would go on tour for two or three days, and we'd play elementary schools to raise money, and it was put into the percussion ensemble's account to get us to go down to Disney World in Tampa every year. So within the course of a week, We'd play at least 10 to 15 elementary or middle schools uh, within the Philadelphia suburban area. Um, so, you know, we have 500 kids at a school. We play 10 schools. That's 5,000 kids we'd play for in a week. And we did that once or twice a year. And those concerts really taught me um, how to be a performer. Not so much a musician in the shed, uh, but more a performer. You know, things happen. You have to go on. The audience can't know that you've just made a catastrophic mistake. How do you cover that up? That's the performer that Joe was. Um, it was repeated performances over and over of the material. And every time he would evaluate and we'd try to do it better. But most of the onus of trying to improve was self-inflicted on us. He wouldn't really lecture us too much because he trusted that we were good enough musicians to know if something went off the rails and he, you know, if it didn't happen again, it was fine. If it happened again a third time, then he'd let us kind of have it. But once, you know, he's like, all right, there was just an assumption that you were going to not do that again and make it better, which was very cool. So let's go back to Joe's bio real quick. So um, 
This sheet I got from my buddy Dan, who was in undergrad with me, Dan Wearsbicky. So Dan, if you're listening, thank you. And it's a sheet of notes that he got from a friend of Joe's. So let's see. Joe went by many names. Um, I knew him as Chief or the Chief. That's all we called him in school. Never called him Professor anything or Goebel or Joe. It was always, hey, Chief, did you see the Chief? Yo, Chief, what can we do? So that's what we did. That was his name. But the etymology of this uh, comes to me through Dan, an email I got from Dan. And it says in the 60s and 70s, um, Joe was known as Broadway Joe. And I think it was kind of a combination of Joe Namath's, uh, the great football player's nickname, and the fact that Joe did so many musicals. He was a first call uh, musical performer in the pits here in Philadelphia. And I'm scrolling through the sheet now as I'm talking. There it is. Um, the list of shows that this guy did is just ridiculous. I'm skimming the sheet right now. It's 60 plus shows. Whoever compiled this, you know, The Music Man, Chorus Line, The Wiz, Bye Bye Birdie, Sound of Music, 42nd Street, etc., etc. So I think that's where the Broadway thing came from. Um, another name he was known as was Super Joe and Four Stick Joe. I'd never heard of those. And in the 80s, he was known as JG for a little bit. But by the time I was working with him, he was belovedly known as Chief, and uh, that's what we all called him. Um, as a child, he did mention to me once that he played with Paul Whiteman. Now, if you don't know who Paul Whiteman is, Paul Whiteman was referred to as the King of Jazz, which is, of course, it's incorrect, but historically, back in the time, in the 30s and 40s, he referred to himself as the King of Jazz, which he wasn't. That's a whole other discussion. But Paul Whiteman was a legendary band leader and is actually the one that commissioned George Gershwin to compose um, Rhapsody in Blue. So um, he had a lot of ties to the um, biggest names of the music era. And when Joe was a child, uh, Joe did tell me once he played as a xylophone soloist with the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. That's all the details I know. I wish I knew more about it. But that's pretty incredible. Um, Joe's formal education included studying at the Eastman School of Music with Fred Hanger, uh, legendary uh, timpani uh, player, instrument designer, uh, Hanger timpani, Hanger snare drums, etc. And uh, so that was his formal education. And then I think most of his other education was just from the School of Hard Knocks. He just did gig after gig after gig. Uh, he did arena shows in the 70s and 80s. He did the Ice Capades. He played the Rockettes. Um, what else did I see? He played with tons of comedians. Pardon my page noises. Um, some of the comedians he played with, uh, Bob Hope, Jack Benny, Henny Youngman, Rodney Dangerfield, Steve Allen, Joan Rivers, Red Buttons, Jackie Mason, etc., etc. And then at the bottom of this page, uh, it's at least 40 people that I've never heard of from the Borscht Belt or the uh, Catskills. Um, I don't know these folks, but one of them stuck out. He played with Soupy Sales when he worked at the Catskills. Um, let's see, who else? Here is a random list of performers that he worked with. Uh, Patsy Cline, Sarah Vaughn, John Raitt, Robert Preston, uh, one of my favorites, the lead actor um, Harold Hill from The Music Man, the 60s version. Uh, Ray Bulger, he was the Scarecrow in the 1939 Wizard of Oz. Uh, Joe also worked with Rita Moreno, uh, Anita from West Side Story, Ella Fitzgerald, Liberace, 
Victimone, Cab Calloway, Bobby Vinton, Cheetah Rivera, Barbara Eden. Um, I think she was uh, the genie in I Dream of Genie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Al Martino, Roger Williams, Stan Getz, etc., etc. So he played with some super heavy hitters uh, throughout his career. And the most bizarre thing is none of us ever knew it when we studied with him. Like I said, he had nothing up on his wall about any of these things. So the guy had decades and decades worth of performing with the greatest performers on planet Earth. And I think that's what made him such a great showman. And just by sort of an osmosis, um, all of us being around him for years in these hundreds of performances we did, um, it rubbed off on us. And uh, that's one of the things I'll never forget about Joe. He was a great player. He could play all the percussion instruments exceedingly well. Um, but I think the showmanship thing and how to be a showman is the biggest impact he had on me uh, personally. All right. So let's see. The percussion ensemble. Um, this group was kind of a flagship group. Um, when I attended uh, the school in the 90s anyway. And Joe had built it up to be this um, very prestigious group to get in. Now, truth be told, it was kind of a ragtag bunch of musicians. They were not all percussion majors. And I'm not sure what the criteria was to get in. It was kind of just Joe said, you're in. And that was it. So after my audition and a couple weeks in school, uh, a spot opened up, and um, I got in. So I was like, wow, incredible. Now, the group was filled with many piano majors, um, some voice majors, uh, and even a geography major. So Joe, I'm not sure what he was looking for. I think he was looking for people that could hang, um, had no egos, I'm pretty sure, in retrospect, and just liked to play music. Um Every single person in that percussion ensemble um, got along. And when I say we were all vastly different personalities, uh, <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Uh, there were some serious partiers in that group. I was not one of them. Um, but they were just as nice to me as they were to the geography major, etc. Everyone got along. Uh, and Joe set that standard. Um, your idiosyncrasies and foibles and individuality is what made you special to the group and Joe appreciated it and if Joe liked you then you were in the group I think that was kind of it that was the fraternity that he had set that unofficial uh, fraternity if you got the green light from Joe the members of the group were like this person's alright no matter how different they were from the rest of the group um, which was pretty incredible um, our outfits that we wore were miraculous. Um, I got in the group and he said, you have to get the uniform. I'm like, what is the uniform, sir? He is like a long sleeve, purple turtleneck, white pants, and pure white tennis shoes. Needless to say, when we hit that stage, we made quite a visual uh, presentation for the audience. And uh, it was groovy, I got to tell you. So, I uh, had so much fun with that percussion ensemble, and uh, the other thing that Joe did, which was incredible, was the repertoire. 
we would play some Jimmy. Okay, there were 16 people in the percussion ensemble, roughly. We had, let me think, we had a bass marimba, four standard, uh, four and a third octave marimbas, um, a vibraphone, bells, maybe one or two xylophones, a full set of timpani drum set, a full complement of hand percussion, congas, uh, bongos, um, tubular chimes, um, and I think an electronic keyboard. So we could really get a uh, gymnasium pumping with the volume we put out. Um, so it was about a 16-member group, and the repertoire uh, was anything from Jimmy Buffett to Tchaikovsky. And the way Joe programmed the music and uh, set it up for the audiences was uh, amazing. We would play Jimmy Buffett, of course, uh, you know, Margaritaville or something, and the kids would be clapping and singing along, perhaps. And that was a lot of fun. And then next up on the bill might have been Serenata by the great American popular composer Leroy Anderson. Um, and then next we might do a transcription of a Tchaikovsky symphony. But the thing that always blew me away was we got the same level of applause for Tchaikovsky as we did for Jimmy Buffett. And it was the way Joe sold the music and the performance to all of the members of the audience. Um, nothing was highbrow um, or nothing was lowbrow. I, I don't know what he did. He was a magical uh, presenter of this music, and I've tried to steal what he did and instill some of that into my students, or all of my students, actually. Like, he found validity in Margaritaville um, and found equal validity in Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony and presented it to the audience as such and demanded that we take as much care performing Margaritaville as we did with Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. Um, I think that was it. Um, he demanded that of the performers, and I think we had fun playing Margaritaville, and we also had fun playing works by the likes of Tchaikovsky, and that's what translated to the audience. I think that's really what it was now, actually fleshing this out um, on this podcast. Um, it was all music, and it should all be respected and performed with um, passion. And that's what Joe really um, gave all of the kids that studied with him. So, let's see. Okay. Joe had an incredible sense of humor. Um, he was filled with jokes, always told us jokes. Um, I can't repeat any of the jokes on this podcast in 2020, though. Um, if you ever met Joe, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but there is one funny um, event that happened that I will relay the story of um, that I think you'll appreciate uh, to kind of get where Joe was coming from joke-wise. <clears throat> he was very, very uh, sharp and a very wise guy. So here's what happened. He was retiring my last year there, so it's around the spring of... Actually, I'll leave the date out. I'm not even sure because let's... Uh, it's like Dragnet. Um, we'll change the names to protect the innocent. Okay. Some higher up at the university was retiring. And Joe was not one to keep his opinions to himself ever. And he had had a couple run-ins with this higher up administrator. And the person was retiring... And they were going to be at an event um, that was being run by the music college. Someone in the music school said, Joe, you're 
percussion ensemble did a great job at the last performance I saw them at. Would they mind being the guest performers at this event? And also, could they perform a piece of music for this outgoing administrator in their honor? And Joe was like, certainly. Joe never passed down an opportunity to perform. And if you've known me for more than, you know, a day, I got that from Joe. Never pass up a gig was kind of his motto. Uh, Play anywhere for anyone. Okay. Um, So, of course, he accepts the gig. He's like, of course we'll play. We'd be happy to. So we're rehearsing. Uh, our general repertoire. I think it was every Thursday night we had rehearsal uh, for Percussion Ensemble. Thursday? I think. Um, And in the midst of one of our regular rehearsals getting ready for a concert, Joe hands out a piece of music with a French title, and we all start playing it. And we're like, what is this for? We know this piece of music. He's like, eh, just be quiet and let's play it. So we play this piece. And the French title, forgive my French, it's Marche à Suplice. It's by Hector Berlioz. It is from his Fantastic Symphony. And in English, Marche à Suplice is March to the Scaffold. Now, you have to know the backstory of this piece of music to understand Joe's twisted sense of humor. In the symphony, Symphony Fantastique, um, there's a protagonist, and he's in love with this woman, Harriet. And um, they're having some good times in the beginning of the symphony. And then something happens mid-symphony, and he kills Harriet in a dream that he has. It's called a program symphony. It's all instrumental, so you have to imagine this. So the protagonist of this symphony um, kills his beloved, okay? And through the course of the music, um, the guy gets arrested, and he gets executed by the French government, Their form of execution in this piece is he would be hanged from the scaffold in the public square. And if you listen to the piece of music, it actually, the music tells the story. You can hear him, you know, walking through the uh, catacombs of a prison, uh, going out into the sun, being uh, taken by um, a horse-drawn carriage at great speed through the streets of Paris, marching up the scaffold, and then being executed and hanged. Okay, it's a really fantastic piece of music if you don't know it. So Google that, okay? Symphony Fantastique. And this specific movement, March to the Scaffold, is about his execution. Back to the ceremony we were going to play. Joe said, we're going to play this um, at the ceremony coming up. And this piece is going to be dedicated to unnamed administrator that I'll keep off the name of this podcast. And we're like, what? He goes, yeah, that administrator and fill in your own words is a blank and blank 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 and we're like whoa joe did not like this person so he's like we're gonna play this but do not let anyone see the english title of the piece i'm gonna put it in the program under the french title and that's it so jump ahead a few weeks we're at this very formal ceremony all these administrators are on the uh on the on the stage in their gowns and have their stoles with their varying degrees and all this business and everyone's very fancy. And someone gets up who's uh, running this event and says, uh, we would like to introduce Professor Joseph Goebel and the Westchester University Percussion Ensemble to play a special piece of music for this outgoing administrator. We played the entire transcription of March to the Scaffold 
and at the end of the piece of music, you can actually hear the person's body bouncing and their neck breaking in the piece. It goes boom, 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 and then ba-ba, you have a ta-da at the end. He bows, we bow, the audience is filled with musicians that probably know the piece, and this administrator gets up and goes, Professor Goebel, thank you. That was one of the most lovely things I'd ever heard. Thank you for doing that for me. And he kind of nodded to the um, person of the hour and then turned around and looked at us with a Cheshire cat grin that I'll never forget because (laughs) we had just played a piece about someone being executed as this person's last hurrah at Westchester and the person had no idea. That was Joe Goebel's sense of humor. Um, And that story has always stuck with me. We were dying laughing, and uh, that administrator probably had no idea what Joe had just done. So there you go. That was Joe Goebel's sense of humor. All right. So how did lessons go with Joe? Uh, Lessons... Uh, were interesting. He would give you assignments. Um, My first lesson as an undergrad, I walked in and he said, all right, do you have the Anthony J. Cerrone book? I'm like, yep. He opened it up and he circled about 26 etudes. He said, great, in December, I'm going to call three of them. Make sure you can play all of the ones I circled. That was our snare drum lesson. (laughs) So, Wow. Talk about baptism by fire. Uh, I had to learn all these etudes and be ready to play them at the drop of a hat. Um, Oddly enough, when the pandemic hit, I was trying to think of a meaningful uh, virtual project to do, and I recorded all 50 of Anthony J. Cerrone's etudes because of Joe's inspiration back as an undergrad. Um, I loved the pieces. Uh, It made me a better musician, better snare drummer. And uh, if you go to my YouTube channel, Uh, You can see all 50 etudes uh, performed uh, over 50 weeks. Um, So that was inspired by Joe as an undergrad, when I was an undergrad. Um, One specific lesson about timpani. Joe was a great timpanist. He did study with the great Fred Hinger. He knew all the repertoire inside and out. He didn't even need the music. He knew the scores. Uh, When we would play timpani lessons or have timpani lessons, we'd be playing, and he's like, oh, no, you can't do that because you have to listen to the bassoons here and then the oboe. Like, he knew the score inside and out. He was, um, I forget which composer or conductor said this, but they said a timpanist is a conductor at the back of the orchestra, and that was Joe. He was just a master of the timpani repertoire. Uh, We started with the classical stuff, which is a little easier, you know, um, Mozart and Haydn. Uh, Then we got into Beethoven, and second semester timpani was always the romantic period. Dvorak, uh, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, etc. So one of the, um, I don't even know what to call it, one of the um, rites of passage uh, as a percussion student in the percussion studio with Joe Goebel was playing the legendary um, Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony. Uh, that killer timpani part. Um, It's legendary. It's on every single um, orchestral audition list across the world. Anyway, um, you knew when you were coming up to it because he did all the symphonies in order from all the different composers. And uh, wherever it fell, uh, he's like, all right, Tchaikovsky for symphony next week. You know the deal. Here was the deal. 
when you walked into your lesson, if you could play it perfectly, you got a free steak dinner from Joe Goebel. That evening, he would take you out to dinner and buy you the most delicious, expensive steak dinner that money could buy. And everyone knew this going into the uh, the lesson for the Fourth Symphony of Tchaikovsky. Um, people would be practicing, you know, months in advance to try to get that delicious steak dinner. And the, it had become such a legendary rite of passage that outside, the timpani were actually not in his office. They were in a separate room on a different floor of the music building. Um, whenever a student was going to play the Fourth Symphony, the other students in the studio would gather outside that room to listen to see if the student would get the steak dinner. Anyway, I was ready. I had performed. Uh, I was feeling confident. And I walked into the lesson, and he's like, are you ready? I'm like, yes. He goes, all right. And he only gave you one shot to do it. That was it. Like, there was no do-over. Like, that was the entire lesson. Like, if it was great, you walked out and got the steak dinner. The minute you screwed up, the lesson was over. So, and you'd play to a recording. Uh, he had a favorite recording. I forget whose it was. So he'd have the speakers, and he'd have the recording of the movement you were going to play, and you'd get ready. I started. I was doing pretty well for the first four measures. And then a, a train wreck. I, I hit the wrong drum. My stick went somewhere, and it just compounded. I was nervous. I knew the entire studio was outside of the room listening. He stopped the recording, and he went, Nope, you blanked it up. And you can fill in your own word for blank. And he said, No steak dinner for you. Lesson over. And he walked out. And I still think he had his, uh, I think he had his parachute suit on that day. He opened the door and walked away. And everyone out there was just like, oh, we're sorry, man. Um, in the history of Joe's studio, I think only two people got the steak dinner. I think. Um, so I don't know when the steak dinner thing started, but um, I never got that sweet steak dinner. But every time I hear Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony now or have to play that timpani part, I can smell steak that I never was awarded. So that was pretty fun. Um, the other thing he did in lessons, too, was he always made connections. And um, there was a lesson once when I was trying to do something. I forget what it was. And uh, he asked me about Stan Kenton. Had I listened to the Stan Kenton Orchestra? And I said, well, you know, I knew a couple of the big things like Cuban Fire. And he said, oh, have you heard their Christmas album? I'm like, never. And he goes, oh, your assignment today? drive to the Exton Square Mall and buy a CD of the Stan Kenton Christmas album. He said some of the finest drumming and big band work you'll ever hear on a recording. Uh, so that's what made me fall in love with uh, the Stan Kenton Orchestra. Uh, the lesson was over. He just said, leave now and go to the mall and buy that CD. He was a big, big proponent of listening to the masters and uh, applying that. Um, and he didn't suggest it. <laughs> like, that was my lesson. Uh, when the next week when I came in, he said, did you buy the CD? I'm like, yes. He goes, yeah, fantastic. And the, I think the whole lesson, we just talked about Jerry McKenzie's drumming on the Stan Kenton Christmas album. Still one of my favorites today. Uh, let's see. So... Just check my notes here. Okay, getting towards the end here. Um, 
he got mad at me twice in my in my whole life and I knew the guy for that year I studied with him and then did see him a few times after that um, I'll tell you the two stories about when he got mad at me. Uh, the first one's strange. Um, he had legendary spaghetti dinners at his house. I forget if they were weekly or bi-weekly or just whenever he wanted to have a spaghetti dinner, but I went to many a spaghetti dinner at Joe's house. Now, Joe lived alone. He had a really beautiful, uh, nice big house um, about 15 minutes away from the university. I'll never forget when you walked in, there was kind of an overlook loft and one of the walls was painted um, orange. It was quite a beautiful shade of orange. I'll never forget that. Um, and like I said, it was spaghetti dinner. He would make unlimited spaghetti. And the percussion ensemble was invited. Bring your friends. Tell everyone. Everyone was invited. Professors, strangers. I don't even know who these people were. So at any given Friday night, there might have been 50 to maybe 100 people at Joe's spaghetti dinners. I was about 19, I think, when I went to my first spaghetti dinner, and I walked into Joe's kitchen. He's like, oh, welcome. I'm glad you could come. Yeah, everyone was welcome with this guy. He was really nice uh, as far as being a welcoming human being. I walk in. He's like, there's plates. There's some drinks, etc." So I get my spaghetti, and I go down, and I sit at a table, and I start eating my spaghetti dinner. And he comes over to me, and I think he might have slammed the table. I'm not sure. But whatever words he said made me feel like there was an impact. He was furious at the way I was eating my spaghetti dinner. I, I was like, what? He goes, you do not use a knife to eat spaghetti in my house. He goes, get rid of that knife right now and get a spoon, and I'm going to show you how to eat spaghetti correctly. So he got a spoon and a fork, and he showed me how to twist the spaghetti, and I never ate spaghetti with a knife again. Thank you, Joe. Um, I don't know why he was so angry, but no one was allowed to eat spaghetti with a knife in Joe's house. Uh, those dinners were great. Um, lots of camaraderie. Uh, let me see some of uh, kind of the man behind the curtain a little bit. He didn't talk about his personal life much, uh, but Sinatra was always blasting. I did get to see his um, table where he did his percussion ensemble arrangements. Um, he had perfect pitch. And when he arranged for his percussion ensemble, there were no rough drafts. It almost sounds like I'm quoting part of Amadeus, uh, the movie. But he wrote everything in felt-tip marker on the um, manuscript paper. Um, and some of them didn't even have scores. He would just write the parts. He'd write marimba one, then marimba two um, in felt-tip marker. And I saw hundreds and hundreds of pages that Joe had arranged because this is the days before Finale and Sibelius. Everything was handwritten. I remember almost no mistakes, no crossouts. Uh, the felt-tip penmanship was beautiful. Uh, it was a lost art form, I think. So I got to see that and was I, I marveled at the fact that he didn't have rough drafts or do them in pencil. Uh, the other thing from his house, for he was giving me a tour, I guess, and we went in the basement, and he was showing me something. And I saw an enormous timpani under the steps, covered. I could tell it was a timpani, but it was massive. And I said, hey, man, what's that timpani? Why is that there? And he goes, oh, that's from the original Fantasia soundtrack. I was like, what? He said, yeah, my teacher used it uh, when they were recording um, Fantasia. And the drums at the time didn't go low enough. That drum goes to a low C below the staff. And he said that's basically the only thing it was used for was that note 
in the Fantasia soundtrack. You know, Fantasia 1940, Disney Fantasia, not the new one. So I had always hoped to see that drum again, but uh, Joe moved to Florida and sold all of his equipment, and I have no idea where that drum went. But I did see the drum that was used in Fantasia. Uh, so that was a kind of an interesting uh, behind-the-scenes thing. All right. Uh, to wind this up and to land this plane, as they say, uh, I'm going to tell you about the second time he yelled at me, and it had a profound impact on me as a musician, a person, and a performer. So it was 1993. We were on tour, and we hit all the elementary schools, and we're winding down the East Coast, hitting some schools along the way, performing. And we played Tampa. We played um, Bush Gardens. We played Epcot Center. And quick aside, um, besides doing fantastic arrangements, Joe also encouraged us students to do arrangements and submit them to him. And if he thought they were good, we did them. And um, one of my arrangements was performed by the group. It was an arrangement of the songs of Sesame Street by Joe Raposa. And uh, before I graduated college, I had had a piece performed at Epcot Center um, because of Joe's encouragement and uh, trust uh, in us to uh, arrange some music. And uh, it became a hit with all the elementary schools we played it at because all the kids knew Sesame Street. And then to see and uh, be part of the performance of my own arrangement was really kind of a life-changing thing. So that's another thing Joe did was encourage us to get out there and uh, try, you know. So I never would have been a composer or a ranger if it wasn't for Joe's encouragement and uh, trust um, in us as students. So thanks for that, Joe. But back to why he yelled at me. We played at Epcot Center, and then the last couple days we went down to Clearwater uh, there was a hotel we liked down there, he liked, called Mannings by the Bay. Uh, he was a regular there every year. And there was a giant hotel right on the Gulf of Mexico called the Adamsmark Hotel. And there was a great band there every evening and afternoon. We'd go check out the band. And he had arranged that his last performance um, as the director of the Westchester University Percussion Ensemble would be at the Adamsmark Hotel and literally, the waves would hit the side of the uh, the railing and come up, and you know the ocean would be on the ground, <laughs> It'd be wet. That's how close we were to the Gulf. It was actually it was a bucolic scene, okay, to be playing marimba on the Gulf Coast like that with sixteen uh, musicians. Anyway, the end of the program uh, to round out the show was one of Joe's arrangements of the greatest hits of the big band era. So we had In the Mood by Glenn Miller, we had One O'Clock Jump, we had some Benny Goodman, etc. And I was chosen to play drum set. Joe really did like my drum set, my swing drum set playing. Um, so he let me play drum set for the uh, semester. So I had been playing this part since December, and now it's May, okay? So the ensemble knew this chart inside and out, and it was going to be the finale of our concert. <clears throat> we played the piece, was fine applause, we start to clean up. I'm cleaning up the drum set on the Gulf, okay, outside on this big deck uh, at the Adams Mark Hotel, and an older couple walks up to me as I'm, you know, ripping apart the cymbals from the drum set, and I'm about 19, 20 years old. And the woman comes up to me, and she's like, that last piece, the big bands, was just lovely. Uh, my husband and I used to dance to these uh, great artists all the time, and uh, we just love that. It was our favorite piece. And then I said, oh, 
our performance yesterday was much better in Epcot Center. Um, the Marimbas missed a repeat today, and I missed a crash symbol. Blah blah blah. I was basically, you know, airing my dirty laundry uh, to these <clears throat> people that had come up and given me some kind words about our performance, and they walked away. I didn't know Joe was an earshot of what just transpired, and as soon as they were out of earshot, he said, "Come here." Like, really angry. I, I had no idea what had just happened. I had, he was actually red in the face. And he took me behind a big pillar so we could have privacy. And he laid into me um, the litany of colorful language he used to tell me I made a bad decision was remarkable. It rivaled that of Buddy Rich. And I was speechless. I was like, ha, ha, you know. And... Here's what he said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, listen, he said, we're performers. He said, never air your dirty laundry to the audience. He said, if you screwed up or someone else screwed up, it's none of the audience's business. You take care of that in the rehearsal studio by yourself. He said, those people came up to give you kind words about what we just did. He said, by you telling them that it wasn't good and that the other day's performance was better diminishes their opinion. You're basically belittling them, telling them that their opinion isn't valid. He said, and it's none of their business what you think of your performance. That was a direct quote, actually, the, the last part. It's none of their business what you think about your performance. That was life-changing for me as a musician. Um, it was profound, and it stuck with me ever since. And I've had to pull that out a couple times with my students in similar situations. It was so deep, that phrase. Um, it might be the greatest lesson he ever taught me. He said, you're a performer. You perform. If the audience got something out of it, leave it alone. And then he went on to say, listen, you don't know those people, do you? I'm like, no. He said, who knows what they just came from? He goes, they're strangers that listened to our performance and they enjoyed what we did. Mission accomplished. That is what our job is as performers, to take them somewhere else, to give them joy, to make them think something, to move their feet, to dance, to move their soul emotionally, etc. This was all the stuff he was yelling at me behind that pillar at the Adams Mark Hotel. And I think that is the greatest lesson that I ever learned from Joe Goebel. Practice, practice, practice. Take care of your business. And when you get on stage, leave it on stage. If the audience applauds and likes it, it was a great performance for them. Let them have and own that memory. Don't dilute their memory with your own opinions, um, being selfish and talking about yourself. Because the performance isn't about ourselves. It's about the community that's there. And I think that is what Joe really brought to... Westchester's Percussion Ensemble, um, all of the different kids that were in the group, piano players, vocalists, geography majors, and you know what? There were some people that were with the Percussion Ensemble. I don't even think they were students, to tell you the truth, <laughs> but it was a sense of community. We're all together because of music, 
let's do our best making music and try to have some fun while doing it. So if you have your own issues, leave them at the door. Say thank you for coming to our performance. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And ever since 1993, every time someone in an audience comes up to me and gives me kind remarks, I think of Joe Goebel behind that pillar, and I say, thank you for coming to our performance. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So, um, that was my tribute to Joe Goebel. Some of the behind-the-scenes stuff and what made Joe special to me and probably hundreds of other people. Um, We always had fun. His group was always inclusive, um, even before it was a thing. (laughs) In 2022, these are hot topic buttons. Everyone's trying to make everything inclusive. 70s, 80s, 90s, not so much, but Joe Goebel did it all the time. And one thing he did uh, that I thought was really special is every performance, he introduced every performer individually at the end. We'd play our concert, and then he'd say, let me introduce the ensemble. And he would always say, ladies and gentlemen, whatever instrument you were on, he would use that as the introduction. He'd say, on drum set today, Sean Kennedy from Ambler, Pennsylvania. He would give your hometown all the time. Um, or Sherry on Marimba from Honeybrook, Pennsylvania, so-and-so from Long Island, and it really brought some of the um, personal, uh, the, the person's background to the audience and made a connection. Like, look, listen, this is a person. They're from Ambler, Pennsylvania. They're from Long Island, you know. Uh, it just kind of got rid of that fourth wall between the performers and the audience and made us all... Um, participate collectively in the music experience and uh, that's what I've been trying to do since I studied with Joe and I will continue to do personally and with my students so to end we are going to uh, I found a bootleg copy of one of our performances this is the percussion ensemble with Joe you're going to hear him on the microphone introducing the piece and it is I think it's his favorite arrangement it was Tico Tico and he would announce, and then he'd run over to the vibes, and he would do a vibes solo uh, in the middle of the tune. So this is Joe introducing the tune, his arrangement and solo of Tico Tico. And uh, thanks for listening, everyone. And Chief, thanks for everything you did for me and everyone else. One of the favorite places we like to visit whenever we play here at Epcot is a pavilion that you can see right over here, and that's Mexico, because they have a fantastic marimba band over there. I know a lot of times the fellows like to come over here and see us because we always make it a point to go and visit and see them as well. We're going to do a number now that we heard them do this morning. In fact, we requested it, and they know it, and we're going to play it for you also right now. This is Tico Tico.
Chico, Chico.